0: Our Father, we do pray, even in light of this text, that we would be marked by not being a people who hear your word and and the opportunity to come and drink from, from living water, springs of living water, that we would not neglect that to go and try and build of our own that which cannot actually hold water. That we would not reject you and look to ourselves or others, but that we would be marked by a continued trust, faith in you. Accompany the preaching of your word, we pray. Keep us from error. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I don't by any means claim to be overly knowledgeable or an expert at all on the American prison system. But I I have heard on a number of occasions, one of the the major challenges with it is how we take those who have been set free and reincorporate them back into society. So if you do basic Google searches, you'll find statistics ranging anywhere from 50% to 75% re-arrest rates. Those who have gone out of prison being arrested again within five years of their freedom. And the belief is that these former prisoners just never learn how to live after being set free. So after a few years they they return to their old habits and eventually back to their old cell. A problem many say is the result of a lack in preparation a lack of knowledge or instruction on how they should live as those who have been set free. A problem that parallels in some ways the spiritual problem we've been considering in Galatia. This city or this area where these churches that Paul had planted reside, this lack of knowledge of how they should live as those who are free. So if you would, turn with me. It's Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. It's found on page 1813 if you're using the pew Bibles in front of you. Now, if you've been with us, you'll remember that over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking what Paul has been explaining is the doctrine of justification by faith. That all of God's people will be declared righteous or justified, not on their own merit, but by Faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. And then last week we we considered this incredible identity shift, the shift that happens for somebody who has such faith as this, that they go from slaves to sons. They're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and adopted into the family of God, made heirs of His perfect and glorious inheritance. They are, in effect, freed from the bondage that they once knew. And yet, what we find this morning is that these Galatians, these freed Galatians, have been tempted to actually return again, back to the slavery they once knew, back to their self-righteousness, a temptation that has Paul, I'm frankly, perplexed bewildered, unsure how they could so quickly be deceived. And so he pleads with them. And we come into a part of the letter that we that exposes Paul the, the pastor, uh, Paul the parent who's writing to his beloved church or children, pleading that they would return to the faith that once saved them, that they once claimed to have. And as he does, he presents three characteristics that should mark the life, not only of these Galatian Christians, but of every Christian who has ever known this freedom in Christ. He says we are to persevere in faith, number one. We are to cherish the truth and we are to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. We are to persevere in faith, cherish the truth, and be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So if you would please follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. To those who by nature are not gods, but now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers become like me. For I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God. As if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so. You would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They want to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. The first characteristic that should mark the life of those who have been freed is point number one. Perseverance and faith. You persevere in faith. Paul begins in verse 8 reminding them of their life before they were a Christian. Before they were adopted into the family of God. Before they even knew God. They were, Paul says, slaves. Slaves to those who by nature are not even gods. The reality of how each one of us began. And the even more sobering reality of every person in our life who does not yet know God through Jesus Christ. No matter how good or, or faithful their worship may seem, the reality is they are worshiping a false God. Because worship of anything other than the one true God, Paul says, is worship of a false God. And that, Paul says, is slavery. But, while that may have been true of them then, Paul says, that is no longer true of you. You professed faith. You have gone from those who were once slaves. But, verse 9 says, you have been freed from slavery. How? Because God has known you. God has set you free by knowing you, reconciling you to himself. Just like we considered last week. This is God's adoption of them, pulling them from slavery and adopting them as his very children. God initiates our deliverance. God initiates our deliverance. Did you ever consider that that the good news of the gospel is not you finding God? It's actually God choosing to know you. That's what Paul says there. When you, he says in verse 9, that formerly you did not know God, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he reconciled and adopted them, which makes his grace even more amazing. But then that is the nature of adoption, isn't it? As adopted children, we come to know our father because our father entered into the orphanage and chose to adopt and know us. Does that make the gospel sweeter to you? Knowing that God not only created you and made you in his image, made each one of us in his image and called us to live holy lives as he himself is holy, revealing what that looks like by giving to us his law and his word, and yet recognizing each of us rebelled. We failed to keep it and proved ourselves to be lawbreakers, distancing ourselves, casting ourselves from his presence. And yet rather than judge us as our rebellion deserved, God instead chose to Know us, to set his affection upon us, to draw us back to himself by sending his beloved Son to live that perfect life for us. Instead of casting us into the eternal punishment of hell, he sent Christ to live that life required of you and me and die the death that we deserved, so that on the cross he could bear the penalty for every sin ever committed by us, if we would turn away from our sin and trust in Jesus alone by faith. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, declaring victory over sin and death and offering out his righteousness and adoption into his family for any who would believe. And friends, if that is you this morning, if that is you, if you have or even would today turn from your sin and trust in him, then God Almighty, your creator, the author of all creation, has chosen to know you. Not on the basis of your work or your merit or your, your coming and finding him, but on the basis of his love, undeserved love. And yet, it is in spite of such amazing news that these Galatians are now considering abandoning this faith that they once claimed by turning to the law for their ongoing righteousness before God. Which is why Paul references there in verse 10 their observance of days and months and seasons and years. What's he capturing? He's, he's capturing the ceremonies celebrated in the Jewish law that they were now thinking they had to keep as their source of righteousness. Now, to be clear, Paul is in no way saying the law itself was bad or evil or in any way idolatrous. He's made very clear that it was good and from God as the will of God revealed on how his people were to live how they were to live in response to being his people. And it was to expose their need for a savior. So in each of those ways, it served a good and right, holy purpose from God. But what Paul is saying is that when that law is used as the source of their righteousness, when they take what was given as a good instrument and misuse it to now become their source of righteousness, It becomes an idol unto itself, used for false worship of a false god. It is as though the Galatians are slipping back into their pagan idolatry all over again, seeking to merit their favor before a false god. It was the same evil that we read of or similar to what we read of in Jeremiah 2. The people rejecting God and seeking to make it on their own. Like adopted children returning to the orphanage after the paperwork has been completed by their father and trying to to work the adoption process on their own. Rejecting the father's offering, either because they don't believe his word or they don't believe his ability to complete his word to fulfill his word. And Paul warns that if they choose to abandon faith alone in pursuit of the law, then verse 11 says they prove their initial profession of faith false. And so his labor among them wasted. Yet Paul does not believe that is the case because he believed their profession was true. He's been calling them brothers throughout the letter. He even said a few verses earlier that he believes God has chosen to know them. So he's not casting them off or writing them off, but he's working to steer their course back to a perseverance in the faith they once claimed. The same faith through which they were initially justified and that same faith that would continue to be their basis of standing justified Before God. And if we are to persevere in faith as Paul is instructing them to, then we also must consider what tempts us to return to slavery, to add to faith as our source of righteousness. What will tempt you this week? Let's just take one specific example. I mean, you are here on Sunday, so you're here in attendance at church. So let's take church attendance. You may know that Hebrews ten twenty-five actually commands Christians to not neglect the gathering together, as is the habit of some, but to gather together all the more as they see the day drawing near. So it is in Scripture God has commanded us to not neglect the regular gathering, which means it would be sin to do otherwise. So this is how God's word actually serves as our good instruction for how we should live as God's children in response to having been justified. And as we'll see later this morning, obedience to it is actually the way that we come, become conformed increasingly into the image of Christ. And to reject God's command at best grieves God's spirit. And at worst, proves we're not really children of God at all. We've never truly been justified. But the moment we take that command, the moment we take God's command that we not neglect the gathering of ourselves together, and we twist it, thinking that, We somehow merit our righteousness that God somehow looks on our merit of church attendance and uses that as our source of righteousness. We have taken God's good command on how we should live as Christians and we have turned it what should be the fruit of righteousness into an idol as the source of righteousness. We have taken what is to be the fruit of righteousness and twisted it into the source of righteousness. I experienced the pain of this in many ways when I first got to my church in D.C. a number of years ago. I remember arriving fresh out of college with a bit of arrogance and confidence in myself. I knew a lot in my mind. But looking back, much of that confidence was heavily rooted in how much Bible I knew, how mature I thought I was, how faithful and disciplined I thought I was as a Christian, so much so I thought the church might as well kind of roll that red carpet out as I walk up into the doors. I mean, here comes Jaron to bless the church. Well, it wasn't long after that that the Lord deeply exposed my arrogance and my falsely placed confidence by surrounding me with People godlier, much godlier than I, much more mature than I, exposing what was a falsely kind of idol of perceived maturity, and now being exposed as immature caused that idol to be crushed, that false scaffolding that I was standing upon to come crumbling down. And it's been years now of kind of relaying a foundation on a much surer, an infinitely more reliable foundation which is the righteousness of Christ. I still desire as a result of that, it still compels me to desire that Christian maturity I once hoped in, but as the fruit of that righteousness, rather than the source of that righteousness. What ways are you tempted to do that even this week? To root your standing before God in your performance instead of in Christ. Paul would take whatever that answer is, whatever that is that you think of in your mind when I ask that question, and he would warn you. He would exhort you. No, no, no. Persevere in faith. Do those good works, but first persevere in faith and then respond in doing those things. But a second characteristic that marks the life of those who have been freed is that they cherish the truth. Not only do they persevere in faith, but our second point, they cherish the truth. So look back with me to verse 12. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy? By telling you the truth? This is your heartfelt plea of a pastor to his church. A pleading, reminding them of that day when he first arrived in Galatia. When he first came to them. How, Even though he was a Jew, born a Jew, he, unlike the Jews, became like them. Like a Gentile. He took on their culture, their lifestyle and lived like them and required nothing more of them for fellowship than what the gospel itself required. And more than that, he says he came to them in illness, an illness that he doesn't specify but may very well have had to do with his eyes since he made that remarkable statement the next verse about their willingness to kind of gouge their own eyeballs out and give it to him. Such was their love for him. But whatever his illness was, it wasn't necessarily that. Whatever it was, it evidently served as the very cause of him going to them. And I want to take just a quick aside here to point out that this should be an encouragement to each one of us to see every opportunity, every circumstance in our lives as redeemable. How many of us see our illnesses as opportunity for sharing the gospel as the very means of sharing the gospel friends when sickness takes you to the hospital what would change if you started to think that perhaps this was actually not just about your health but about god's providential hand guiding you a gospel believing truth cherishing christian into the life of that nurse or doctor. Imagine yourself on the hospital bed as a nurse tends to you because you're no longer able to care for yourself and then turning suddenly to the nurse and saying, can I tell you about the hope that gets me through this? Can I tell you about the reason I have for joy even amidst my sorrow. Our illnesses, our persecutions, our limitations and trials should never be viewed as hindrances to the gospel, but as opportunities for the gospel. This was certainly the case for Paul and just look at the Galatians' response. He says they in spite of his burdens, in spite of each trial and each challenge that accompanied his initial arrival, he reminds them of how they joyfully received him. They received him with joy, because, with a sense of blessedness. Not because of him, clearly, but because of his message because of this hope that he offered of eternal life, of being made right with God and being known by God and adopted as his sons through faith in Jesus. Oh, how infinitely small were such trials compared to the surpassing weight of this gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus and being adopted into the family of the one true God. These churches cherished the gospel. They sacrificed to hear the truth. They, as our point says, cherished the truth. And yet Paul says, what happened? What happened to the love you had at first? You did me no wrong at a time when you had every reason to. Would you now make me out to be your enemy for simply continuing to teach the very thing I've always preached? No, he says in verse 12, I plead with you. Become like me. Return to that freedom you once knew that I still know and cherish the truth that you once cherished. The gospel that you once sacrificed for. Those who have been adopted by God are marked not only by a perseverance in faith, but by a faith that produces a cherishing of truth, of God's truth, of His gospel, and of the entirety of God's revealed Word. So let me ask you this morning what is it that you cherish? Much like the Galatians sacrificing for Paul, we can quickly identify the things that we most cherish by the things that we sacrifice for. A God only gives us 24 hours in a day, so just look at how you order your days and your weeks. You have infinite number of things you sacrifice and say no to in order to do those things you most cherish. So what are those things that you most cherish? To begin with, like we've already noted, you're here, which means you must cherish giving your Sunday, the Lord's Day, unto the Lord and to fellowship with his people when people all around this island are saying that is foolish, that you should use your time to do otherwise. And yet you are here week after week, loving God and his word. I trust it is because you cherish his truth and the preaching of it. And let me just stop here for a moment to just give a commendation and a moment of thankfulness. Because as I read Galatians, as I read how this church received Paul, I was struck by how you all have received me and my family. I mean, I have, I have tasted a bit of Paul's sense of weakness. I, I don't have a you know, significant amount of training or formal pastoral ministry. I mean, I had virtually no pastoral experience other than some training I've received, no schooling or past experience teaching and preaching week after week and arrived with much weakness and insecurity. And yet it was in spite of that weakness, because you cherish the word of God, because you cherish the one who will teach The word of God who will try to bring forth the word of God that you received me and my family with joy. Counting our trials, a worthwhile cost. Caring for me when I was sick. Deal, exercising his medical expertise when I had a little bout of fainting. You have housed us, you have fed us. The elders meet with me once a week. A handful of you give feedback on how I can grow as a preacher. Why? Because you love the word of God and you love the one who will teach and preach the word of God. You cherish it. Your wives have invested in my wife. You have encouraged us and we have been overwhelmed by how this congregation has loved on us and it has stirred in us an affection in return far beyond what we ever expected when we came here. Praise God for this evidence of grace in your life. But I also want to challenge us as a church to think about how we order the rest of our week in such a way that would demonstrate our cherishing of this truth, of this word. We live in an era of Christian history unlike Paul's one in which the entirety of God's revealed truth is bound in a single book and in your language and easily accessible. Do you order your day and your week in such a way that someone could look and say, oh, yeah, no question, you cherish God's truth. Today marks my sixth anniversary And I figured I had to give a plug somehow in the sermon to how I cherish my wife. Uh, And I do. But I was thinking, and my wife reminded me, and this is why I made the illustration this morning, of what it would be like if I only spent time with my wife once a week. If I only rarely listened or spoke with her. And really the entirety of what I listened or found out about her wasn't by what I asked of her, but rather what other people said about her. If I just listened to what other people thought about my wife. And once a week I kind of did that, and the rest of the week I kind of did my own thing. My marriage would be in shambles. And worse than that, there is no evidence at all, nothing that would give any substance to me claiming I cherish her. And friends, we should not make our standard in our relationship with our Heavenly Father any lower. We should order our lives to regularly hear from God in His Word. But if maybe you feel intimidated by studying the Bible, let me just offer a few suggestions that have been useful to me as I've been trying to grow as a student of God's Word. The first is just start reading it. If you're not right now, just pick a book of the Bible and just start reading through it. He has given you the spirit of truth to help you understand his word and do it regularly, daily. It, it's generally better, as it is in a relationship, to have smaller amounts of time done every single day than to create some standard for yourself and how you spend time reading God's word that you're only ever able to do once a month. Choose something, start reading through it, go through the gospel of Mark or of John and learn about the life and ministry of Jesus. Follow along in the Essentials 100 program that we've been doing and do it every day. And second, if you're struggling to meditate on the, on the text that you're reading, four simple questions that I've been asking when I read the scriptures that have helped me meditate is how can I praise God in light of this text? What does it teach me about ways I can praise God? How does the scripture confront me in my sin? What can I confess because of what I see in light of this text? How does this text point me to Jesus? And how does this text call me to live, to respond? Ask those four questions and then turn those four answers into a prayer, just like we did when we prayed through the Acts formula, a prayer of praise, a prayer of confession, a prayer of thanksgiving, and a prayer of supplication. Four simple questions, four simple answers, and you're you're meditating on God's word. And finally, let me encourage you as a third suggestion, just take advantage of what the church offers. Join us Sunday mornings in the adult Sunday school hour as we take a text of scripture and we just try to study through it. This morning we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Or join one of the discovery groups that will come this fall and join a group of Christians from this church who are growing in their study of God's word. Or just find somebody that you think cherishes the truth and ask them to start meeting with you and rub off on you a little bit. You know, teach you how to better be a student of God's word that he has blessed you with whatever we do we should be marked by the ongoing cherishing of the truth contained in god's word and when we are the effect will be that we start becoming increasingly conformed to it and to the likeness of his son which is where we're turning in our third characteristic that marks the life of those who have been freed. Point number three, be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Let's turn back to verse 17. Paul says, Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They want to alienate you from us so that, they may, so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Paul closes our text this morning by going head-to-head with these false teachers, contrasting his deep and parent-like, pastor-like, genuine love for these Galatians with the false flattery of these false teachers. In verse 17, he depicts the Galatians as those being deceitfully, those zealously but deceitfully pursued by these Judaizers, men who are, Who are willing to say anything as though they're kind of courting them and willing to say anything they need to in order to make them feel good about themselves. But their purpose, their goal is only to gain the Galatians as followers of themselves by making Paul and therefore Paul's message out to be their enemy. To alienate or shut them out from Paul and to shield them from the truth. Does it sound familiar? That plan, that idea? Oh, we should not be surprised that Satan will continue to use the same plots and the same strategies over the centuries. Just think of how our culture continues to push and promote this same idea. Satan has almost made it hate speech to tell someone that they are by nature in need of a savior, that they are sinners. And he has replaced it with this cultural expectation, much like these false teachers, that we must make much of one another, affirm one another as we are, not tell one another that we need to be different or conform to the likeness of another. He has made love synonymous with affirmation. But note Paul's response here. It may feel good to be pursued, but only it is only good if that pursuit is for a good purpose. But if it shuts you out from the truth that we're called to cherish, the good feeling of that affirmation has an expiration date set on it. It will last for a moment. But when the truth is revealed, when we come before the Lord on that last day and the truth is, be, is revealed and we give an account for how we cherished our sin and ourselves over his gospel. We will no longer know the feeling of joy accompanied with or the feeling of kind of temporary happiness of accompanied with being affirmed falsely with false flattery. This, quote, love of these false teachers is like a parent more concerned with their popularity in their child's eyes than they are with their child's well-being. It's certainly easier and will often appear in the short term more loving if you simply give your child whatever it is they ask of you and affirm them as they are and affirm their every desire. But that's not true love. True love speaks the truth in love. It is affirming and it is affectionate. But that affirmation and that affection always is toward a good end, namely to conform them into the image of Christ, to have them be holy as God is holy, which is what we see in Paul. Who, like a mother in childbirth, says he was longing not that the Galatians would simply be affirmed as they are, but that they would become mature, that they would come to full term, that they would have Christ fully formed in them. To paraphrase John Stott, what should matter to us is not our popularity, but that Christ is formed in each other. And church, this should mark our evangelism. Paul should be an example for us in how we evangelize, how we contextualize our evangelization because he became like the Galatians. And as he'll later write to the Corinthians, he would become all things to all people. But his purpose in both was the same. For those in Corinth, he became all things to all people that he might win some. And to the Galatians, he became like them that Christ might be formed in them. He became like those he sought to reach. He loved them and entered into their lives. But not one time did doing so ever cause him to compromise the truth of the gospel. He would never choose more followers over truth. He would prefer instead to be counted their enemy. Friends, if we deceitfully flatter like these false teachers, we might win followers, but we will not win them as Christians. We might win them as followers, but we will not win them as Christians. A partially true gospel is a false gospel and a false gospel is, as Paul said earlier, weak and worthless, unable to do anything to deliver us from our sins. So think back for a moment to the last time you talked with someone about Christianity who is not a Christian. Were you tempted to deflate the truth? To kind of temper down that they need to repent of their sin if they are to be made right with God? Were you tempted to tell them of the blessings of salvation without also telling them that it would cost their very lives? Or to nod affirmingly at their their contentment, thinking that God will treat them good because of their good works out of fear of offending them. We should work to meet people where they're at, but should work even harder to make sure doing so never compromises the truth. And for those of us who have believed the gospel, we should heed both Paul's expectation and his assurance In those words, until Christ is formed in you, his expectation that if you have been adopted into the family of God, he expects that the spirit of God has entered into your hearts. The spirit of his son has been has entered into your hearts, which means you will persevere in faith and cherish the truth in such a way that you will become increasingly conformed to the likeness of his son, of Christ himself, until Christ is fully in you. This is much like the blessedness we are discussing in the Sermon of the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who seek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness who beco- and become righteous as his Son is righteous. We begin conforming to it. That is Paul's expectation. Um, but his words are not only that of expectation but also of assurance for if you are truly in Christ this morning the words until Christ is formed in you is actually a promise it is an assurance that one day Christ will be fully formed in you as you work in the strength that God provides to be conformed into the likeness of his son his spirit will begin to actually transform you into it and according to Philippians 1 6 it is a task that is sure to be completed so we should strive not as though our completion rested on our shoulders but as those who have been promised victory will come through his spirit working in and through our pursuit of Christ likeness so let me close By just asking you where you are in Paul's plea to the Galatians. Where are you in his plea to these churches? Are you marked by a perseverance in faith alone? By a cherishing of the truth. And by an increasing conformity to the likeness of Christ. Are you living as an adopted son of God and in the freedom that Christ purchased for you? I pray that each of us would be marked by each of these characteristics until we receive that final inheritance. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray this. And we pray that you would would mark us by a continued resolve and a continued hope and a continued banking in faith alone, in Christ alone. But that that faith would, would cause us to cherish your truth and that that truth would accompany your, be accompanied by your spirit and conform us into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.